0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and very happy to see you here this evening. Uh, I know I I heard several people say that they came here in January during the polar vortex three months ago. Do you remember that? Uh, We'll never forget, right? Um, So we're glad that that you came, um, and we're glad that Marianne was able to reschedule and come back. Um, We canceled at that time because we felt that... uh, no hearty souls would come out. And here there were several of you who um, who did that evening. So anyway, we're glad that you're all here this evening. We, there are lots of um, flyers and our newsletter on the table there by the door. Please pick them up and see what's, um, what else is happening in April. The City Lit Festival is a week from Saturday. James McBride, the National Book Award winner, will be here. So we hope that you will come out and give him a Baltimore welcome. Um, this program is actually, uh, actually came about because my neighbor, Trisha Rubaki, um, came to me and said I have a friend, a woman I went to high school with, who's written this wonderful book and uh, I think I'd love to see her come to the Pratt. So I asked Trisha if she would be, come this evening and introduce her friend Marianne. So,
1: Trisha? Hi, everyone, uh, and thank you, Judy, but before I introduce Marianne, I have to tell you that a couple of years ago, I moved to a condo building, and I was telling everybody that I was moving there, and they all said, do you know Judy Cooper? <laughs> and I said, no, and they said, well, you, you just have to meet Judy Cooper, so my life has changed measurably because I met Judy Cooper, and we are neighbors and friends, and um, in addition to that, I'm on the staff of Open Society Institute Baltimore, and... Through a collaboration here with the library, we have had this phenomenal talking about race series because of Judy's help, and so I just want to acknowledge Judy and the phenomenal work that you do here uh, of the community uh, through the Pratt Library. So it is true that I have known Marianne Zegedy-Mazak, when you have a name like Rubaki, you respect people's names like Zegedi Mazak. <laughs> Make sure you can say it right. Uh, I, we've known each other since we were 13 years old. And um, I, I think if you have read the book or if you will read the book, she, she expresses with um, great affinity this wonderful high school that we both attended in Washington, D.C., a girls' Catholic high school, Georgetown Visitation And while we certainly were a small school and we knew each other very well, um, I would have to say that I was one of those people who stood in awe of Marianne because she was incredibly studious, um, very well read, always at the top of every class, and at the same time she was so nice and sociable, and kind to everyone, and it's, I think, hard to find those qualities in the same person, so that's one of the reasons why I've always really, really loved Marianne, but as life happens, um, we go in different directions, and I actually hadn't seen Marianne in quite a while until we had a fill-in-the-blank high school reunion We won't go to how how many years ago it was last April. And and the party was held at a mutual friend's home in D.C. And we got to talking and Marianne was talking about this book that she was writing and about her family in Hungary and everything. And I said, well, I actually work for George Soros, who's another famous Hungarian here in the U.S. And I can't wait to read your book. And as a matter of fact... As soon as it's published, I'm going to send it to George Soros, which I did uh, as soon as it came out. And um, for those of you who don't know George Soros, he's the philanthropist who's the founder of Open Society Foundations, 70 foundations across the globe. And among many other things he does, last year he got married. And I, of course, think, what could you get for someone Uh, when they've gotten married for probably the third time, and he's actually 82 years old. So I said, well, I can't think of any better gift for George Soros than this book. (laughs) So um, I wasn't able to get it signed for him first, but um, I I just can tell you that um, Mr. Soros is someone who, uh, like all of us, um, really just has deep, deep uh, historical roots and cares very much about culture and history and family, and he really just um, loved the book. And as I was telling Marianne that um, my husband and I have actually been trading the book across the night tables, trying to make sure that we finished it before uh, the program tonight. Um, so all I can say is that we have a, a gem here um, coming to Baltimore uh, from the D.C. area to speak tonight about her wonderful book. And I can tell you that just the mere title of this book, I Kiss Your Hands Many Times, just says everything about Marianne. Marianne Mazek. Wow. Tricia,
2: thank you so much. I could take issue with nearly everything you said, but I won't, and I really appreciate it. And Judy, thank you for your warmth and welcoming and your incredible logistical acumen to pull all of this together. And thank all of you for coming out tonight. It's such a beautiful evening that um, I imagine you could even be out barbecuing or something, but I'm grateful that you've chosen to spend a little bit of your time with me here tonight. As I look around the room, I know that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of books as well, that everybody here has an extraordinary family story somewhere, that there are great personalities in your lives, there were stories of pathos, of historical heft, of drama, of humor, of warmth, of family that goes back for however many generations. But I know that I am not alone in being smitten with my family or interested in my family. And that, I think, is one of the things that we share. I think that another thing that we might share is that there is a basic interest in our parents, in imagining who our parents might have been or who they were before we appeared in their lives, before history and time and age changed, and us, changed them, and what they might have been like in real time when they met each other, when they first courted, what the historical events surrounding them might have been, but also what the emotional climate that they existed in might have been how did they talk to each other before they had to start talking in front of us? And fortunately, that's something else that I was—I share with you and I was able to experience. All right, I got to figure... There we go. My family, as uh, you might gather from my last name, is Hungarian. And I came to my story both as a daughter and those are, the dis- those are the attributes that I was just describing to you, but also as a journalist. And as a journalist, I knew I had a pretty great story. And as a daughter, I knew that I was very curious in finding out about these people. I can make distill the great story into a very brief description that my mother's family were the largest Jewish industrialists in Hungary, And they ended up being saved by the cataclysm of the final solution in Hungary by making a deal with one of the architects of that final solution, Heinrich Himmler. And the miraculous story is that Himmler kept his side of the bargain. My father, on the other hand, was a Gentile. He was born in 1903 and a diplomat. And he became the head of the political division of the Hungarian Foreign Ministry, and tried to negotiate a separate peace with the allies. And he ended up going to Dachau. So you can see there is a paradox here. There are the Jews who were saved by a criminal, and there was the Gentile who went to concentration camp. But of course, that's just the headline. And here, are, here is the rest of the story. Here this is a picture of my grandmother leaning her head against her mother and the four generations of her fa- her the matrilineal line in her family. Her mother against whom she was leaning was dead a couple of years later of pernicious anemia after having had six children. Her father was the great Hungarian Jewish industrialist Manfred Weiss. Manfred Weiss was as I said, Jewish, and had began as a modest um, businessman, and he started a factory that made um, cans for jams and eventually for goulash, and he always had a kind of a genius for who he was going to do business with, and eventually he did business with the Hungarian army, and it was during the Franco-Prussian War, so he ended up making a killing providing them with not only um, food but also little um, stoves that they could use. Eventually this small factory grew into a giant factory called Cheppel, and this is a picture of it. This manufactured everything from safety pins to bicycles to very bad cars, to pots and pans, to wooden airplanes at one point, which is just difficult to imagine, and Messerschmitt engines later on for the Germans. The family was prosperous, and this is a picture of my mother is on the left-hand side, the little girl. Her mother Manfred Weiss's daughter, is standing in the back with her father and my uncle George. My grandfather is in the foreground being antisocial. And my grandfather was one of the many good marriages that the Weiss-Manfred family had. His father um, was Zygmunt Kornfeld, you don't have to remember any of these names, but was responsible for the banking system in Hungary. At one point, the marriages of these children, five of them married, one of them did not, but the marriages ended up being, um, were so good that they were, they represented 10% of the Hungarian GDP. So it was an astonishing level of wealth. Meanwhile, my father, and you have to figure out which one he is in this picture, (laughs) was from a haute bourgeois... A plus.
3: <laughs>
2: he was um, in the, from a family of good upper middle class Hungarians. His mother, who is the formidable woman on the right, was the head of, Catholic, of the Catholic Women's Organization in, in Budapest. And his father was not a Catholic, but a Protestant. And my father grew up initially as a Protestant, although eventually he converted to Catholicism. He was uh, a precocious and a beautiful boy and ended up going to Ecole de sciences politique in France, where he became a diplomat where he learned how to become a diplomat. This is my mother with her brother's uh, two brothers and her older sister Maria or my aunt Popa now I'm going to give you a brief history lesson in um, 20th century Hungarian history. This was Austria, this was when Hungary was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you can see it was very, very big. Hungary had a genius for always being on the wrong side of battles, and this was no exception. So as the big loser, the Treaty of Trianon eviscerated Hungary, and what was once greater Hungary ended up being losing three-quarters of its territory and one-half of its population. So it was huge. It was a huge trauma for people then in 1919, 1920. One of the effects of that, oopsie, sorry, one of the effects of that trauma was a period of tremendous instability and 133 days of communism with a man some, uh, whose name some of you might recognize, a man named Bela Kuhn, who was Jewish probably not by practice, but certainly by origin, as were many of his fellow communists there. The regime, as I said, lasted only 133 days, but the result of it was that it fixed in many Hungarians' minds a kind of equivalence between communism and Judaism, and a sense that Jews were less Hungarian than they were part of some creepy international movement. This was further emphasized by the big loss of territory because when Hungary was huge, there were many, many national minorities. But when Hungary became very small, the result was that there were only two national minorities. One of them were Jews and the other were the Roma, the gypsies since the Roma did not ascend to very many positions of power, but the Jews, obviously, if you have 10% of the Hungarian GDP and that is just in one family, that could also create a lot of suspicion. So you can see the stew of anti-Semitism was beginning. The famous um, Admiral Miklos Horty marched in, and there he remained for the next 23 years as the regent of Hungary. There he is, meeting my great grandfather, Manfred Weiss, at the factory. And curiously, you can see in this, um, this picture of the Madonna over Manfred Weiss's head. This was not any um, miraculous vision, but some portrait there, or some uh, painting that was hanging there. The family. As I said, was Jewish, but because of this period of anti-Semitism in the twenties, because of this general sense of wanting to establish there, uh, as with many of the Jews in Central Europe at the time, I'm sure that many of you have heard about the you know German Jewry and the rest. There was always this tension between assimilation and not assimilation. My family. People assimilated. People converted. Many of them, because they weren't particularly observant Jews, and they figured it was a pragmatic thing to do. But for some, and like and a number among them, my grandfather, my, um, he actually believed in Jesus. He believed in Christianity. My grandfather was, unlike his father, not a great businessman or a great financial genius, but a sort of deep-thinking philosopher type and he wanted to become a Catholic. His sister, lest you think this was an aberration in the family, became a lay nun and translated St. Augustine into Hungarian. So there was something in the de Kornfeld gene that obviously predisposed them to a, a kind of Christian identity. My grandmother wanted nothing to do with it, not only because her father, Manfred Weiss, thought there was something a little bit unreliable about people who would convert and give up their religion, but also she couldn't bear the idea of not being buried in the same cemetery, the Jewish cemetery with her parents. After her father died in 1924, she, my grandfather kept pushing, and indeed she had the children baptized. She was just the holdout. But they went on a vacation, on a family vacation. And my grandfather was supposed to join them in Italy for this vacation. But the weather was terrible. My grandmother became very, very worried. And that at that point, she made one of what was probably many bargains with God. And she said she would convert if he was safe and sound. And he was safe and sound. And she became a Christian. They lived... Um, much of the time in Budapest, but from May until October, they were in this beautiful villa in a place called Ireg, which was um, outside of, near Lake Boloton, any of you who have visited Hungary. This was a place of tremendous grace and civility with horses and tennis courts and swimming pools. And it was a place that my mother, everybody, loved dearly. And so when my parents met they off my father would sometimes come visit in iraq my father was after he became a diplomat his first posting was in berlin where he became the secretary to the hungarian ambassador in berlin at the time in the in 1933 so you can imagine at that point things were changing rather profoundly in germany Adolf Hitler had just become chancellor, and my father watched the rise of Hitler for the next eight years. He stayed in Berlin until 1938, and there he saw the devastating effects of this man's regime, especially on the Jews. Hungarian Jewish businessmen who had businesses, who had real estate, who had small ventures in Berlin, would come to the embassy begging him for some intervention because they were being summarily kicked out of wherever they worked or whatever they owned. And he realized he couldn't do anything. He went to the famous Nuremberg rallies that Leni Riefenstahl filmed. He had dinner with Hitler. The fact that these were memories in my father's life, you know, um, as my memories were sort of having lunch with Tricia at visitation, <laughs> were kind of created the um, great, I think, gap in our family's life, but also my father's um, tremendous historical sense. When he got back to Budapest, he worked in the foreign ministry and eventually he became the head of the political division, which was a very powerful job at the time. In nineteen on march nineteenth, nineteen forty four, the Germans invaded their Hungarian allies. They became so impatient, first of all, with the fact that the Hungarians pretty much protected their Jews. There were labor camps that were horrible, where young Jewish men were sent off basically as cannon fodder to the Don to be murdered in Russia, in the Russian front. There was tremendous anti-Semitism, absolutely. At the same time, There were not concentration camps. There were not ghettos. There was not mass deportation yet. And this was unfathomable for Hitler. He had managed to galvanize this kind of extermination of Jews throughout Europe, and somehow it wasn't happening in the same way in Hungary. He also needed a beachhead. The Russians were approaching from the east, And the Germans realized that they needed some place that had a lot of resources. And Hungary, obviously, was the last holdout. When the Germans invaded, everybody in my family hid. My grandfather went to... um, My grandfather and his brother-in-law, Ferenc Korin, remember that name. It's going to be important in the future. Went to an abbey in Zierz where they were immediately arrested Eventually, my grandfather was sent to Mauthausen. My mother and the rest of her family hid. Now, we're talking about 40 people, this extended family. And they hid all over the place. Uh, Sometimes they had to move to several different places. And at a certain point, of course, when you were hiding from um, your neighbors as well, when there was an air raid, everybody else went to the air raid shelter, and my mother stayed upstairs hiding in a closet. On April the 5th, the Hungarian Jews had to wear the yellow star, and this is actually my mother's yellow star that I found discarded, among many other things, in a big bag in her room. She was not alive when I found it. As I said, my grandfather went to Mauthausen, which was a quarry, and my father was arrested after... My father, when he was the head of the political division tried to negotiate a separate peace with the allies. That was an effort that ultimately led to his arrest in April of 1944. He was kept at um, a prison in Budapest for several months until he was then sent to Dachau. Unbelievably, when my grandfather was in Mauthausen, this is Ferenc Koren. Ferenc Korin was also in concentration camp. He was married, to the, he married into the family, and he was a tremendously wealthy man and a great financial genius. And what was amazing was that he was taken out of his concentration camp by a man named Colonel Kurt Becher. Here you see him. He was an adjutant of Heinrich Himmler's, and he was, according to my mother, a thief, but not a murderer and an incredible opportunist. And he realized that it would be pretty good. The war was not going well for the Germans, and it might not be the worst thing to make a deal with some rich Jews. Not only would he be able to present a very important factory to Himmler, as well as coal mines, as well as other resources, but if things did not go perfectly well, he would be seen as being a good guy because he saved some Jews. So he was he had, had installed himself in my uncle Ferenc's home in Budapest, and then he took Ferenc Korn out of concentration camp and made a deal with him. Eventually, the deal ended up um, being a 25-year lease for all of these properties and all of their holdings, And the family ended up being free to go to Portugal. Some of them went to Switzerland, but four hostages remained, so they wouldn't talk to um, anybody about this particular deal. The family, after they were taken all out out of their hiding places in Budapest, met in a villa outside of Budapest to sign everything away. And my grandmother's oldest sister, my Aunt Elsa, who was widowed at 37 with seven children and was in a notorious spendthrift, was signing paper after paper after paper and said, if I had known we had this much, I would have spent more. <laughs> Alas, she didn't have the opportunity. I'd like to read you a little bit about what happened when they arrived in Lisbon. Millionaire Koren Buys Nazi Freedom read the bold headline in the Syracuse Herald American. Paul Golly, the correspondent in Bern, wrote, It was by selling to the Hermann Goering crowd all his shares of the Schalgo mines and the Manfred Weiss armament works that the Hungar- Hungarian Jewish multi-millionaire Francis Koren and his family were able to escape to Lisbon a few days ago. Gali reported that Korin planned to go to America convinced that there is nothing in this world that money cannot buy. Meanwhile, his fellow Jews in Hungary, not being millionaires, must continue to submit to Nazi tortures. Recent estimates speak of 300,000 Israelites as being earmarked for deportation. Reports reaching here indicate that 100,000 Hungarian Jews have been gassed in the Auschwitz camp, Silesia. British and American intelligence services in Portugal assumed the family must be Gestapo German spies. The logic, tortured as it was, was that the deal implied that Germany had engaged in special negotiations, possibly peace talks with the United States and the United Kingdom, and that one part of those discussions involved the protection of these prominent Jews. The Russians could not help but feel cut out of those arrangements, and their suspicion would corrode the alliance. I have a thick file of these reports from the OSS, the U.S. State Department, the British Foreign Office, and the British Embassy in Portugal. Each one contains fragments of the truth. The communications finally reached Winston Churchill, who was being asked from all directions for permission to pursue the family. The Russians insisted that these rich German spies should be apprehended, at least interrogated. Finally, on the 8th of August, Churchill wrote in his special minutes, This seems to be a rather doubtful business. These unhappy families, mainly women and children, have purchased their lives probably with nine-tenths of their wealth. I should not like the Russians to seem to be wanting to hunt them down. By all means, tell the Russians anything that is necessary, but please do not let us prevent them from escaping. I cannot see how any suspicion of peace negotiations can be fixed on this miserable affair." Once in Portugal, the family ended up with another very famous Hungarian family, who you might recognize, the Gabor's. The oldest, um Zsa Zsa and Eva, were already making their fame and fortune here in the United States, but Magda and her parents, Jolie and her father, who was nameless for eternity, remained in Budapest. And Magda actually had had a long affair with a Portuguese ambassador to Hungary, who ended up having to go back to Portugal. So when the Nazis invaded, he felt very worried about his mistress and kind of piggybacked on the deal with my mother's family and got the fam- her f- his mistress and her parents out to um, estoril where the f- my mother's family ended up finally staying Jolie Gabor, the mother, the formidable, frightening mother, was always had a good sense for the most powerful man in the room, and that was my uncle Ferenc Korin. So one evening, she summoned him to her bedroom and said, Oh, Ferry, here I am, and I'm wearing my oldest nightgown. And he was feeling a little bit uncomfortable about this, and she had to give up that. But then she and he would always play gin rummy together. So they decided to play a round of rummy while she was lying in bed. He it was low stakes. She won. He paid her. And then she said sadly, you know, this is the least amount of money a man has ever given me when I've been lying in bed. So there is a little bit of gabor a little inside gabor story. Meanwhile, my father was in Dachau and he stayed there until he was liberated. He nearly died there. He had typhus and became very, very ill. And he also met a um, an architect, a French architect there who was somehow infused him with some optimism. So that's sort of the historical story. This is the, these are the big history parts of it. But my parents met and fell in love in 1940 but they couldn't get married because of the Jewish laws. And that meant that they ended up just courting for the next five years. They would go to the family place in Ireg, and my father would write letters to my mother. I had no idea that these letters existed, because he had to stay in Budapest and work, and then he would write her and tell her what his days were like, and their love affair unfolded in these letters. As I said, I grew up... um, Completely unaware of this. We lived in a big house in Patterson Street with my mother's parents, her sister, and our family was sort of on the bottom of the evolutionary scale. And my brothers and I really had no idea of what existed between my mother and father. After everybody had died, and being the only girl in the family, it fell to me to clean out the house. I imagine some of you are sympathetic to this. And there I found in my mother's bedside table a small kosh of letters, and they were marked 1940, 41, 42, and 43. And I looked at them, but I don't speak Hungarian, as the youngest of three, Everybody gave up, and so did I. So I looked at these letters, and they were all written in Hungarian, and I knew what could I do. I put them in a folder, because I was a journalist, and I knew I had a good story, and I'd always hoped one day I would write a book. But the folder um, was the working title of this book, a friend of mine said, should be the book I will never write. And I kept these letters until finally I... um, a friend of mine, a Hungarian friend of mine, translated them for me, and there unfolded quite a beautiful love affair. My parents were would often court in my f- father's Steyr One Hundred, and they would drive all over the countryside in Budapest, outside of Budapest, and they would then. Did I go backwards? I think we're still in we're in Dachau. Let's go back to the Steyr, um, and there they would make plans and fall in love and hope for the future. When they said goodbye to each other on March 18th, it was after my father's mother's birthday party, and they had no idea that that would be the last time they would see each other. My father was in Dachau, and eventually he was liberated. Here he is in his um, concentration camp outfit after liberation, and he became... Uh, he was put in charge of repatriating the Hungarian prisoners of war in that concentration camp. You can imagine what a complicated mess that must have been. And the Americans saw him, and they saw in him something that they had hoped for in the next Hungarian government, a democratic person, somebody who believed in the Western values, and so they ended up talking to him rather a lot, and he was still weak and sick, but recovering, and finally ended up being uh, taken to Paris for a reason he could never figure out. And there in August of 1945, this was three months after being liberated by the Americans, he wrote my mother the first letter she received. My dear Hanshi, This is the first opportunity to write you to ask you, do you still love me, and to tell you that I love you? In my case, there is no change, and I wish that you would be my wife as soon as possible. That is, unfortunately, one thing that did change. I became a bit worn out, physically and maybe even emotionally. I had typhus, myocarditis, prison diarrhea, and nephritis. I almost perished, but I had a Dutch medical doctor friend who saved me at the last minute. Now I am in general okay, but I still move around with difficulty and have to watch my heart. That's the physical part. The emotional one, of course, I cannot judge myself, but sometimes I feel I have problems there too. Consequently, I feel that it is irresponsible to want to tie your fate to mine, yet broken and without a job. I am asking you to be my wife. On the back and front of each page and on the back of the fourth page, his writing even crawling up the margin, he wrote about the uncertainty of his situation. Several pages into the letter, he returned to the days after March 19th and asked her forgiveness for having been, quote, so cowardly that I walked out on you and did not come to see you. I was in a horrible state of mind. I was watched and I expected to be arrested. This is, of course, only an excu- not an excuse, only a mitigating circumstance because nothing can excuse that I left you. But I have been punished a little, and maybe I can atone by never leaving you again, supposing, of course, you want this too. Think about this profoundly, my honchi, because we will not have an easy life. I have no idea how my mother got the letter. I remember asking her once when she had heard from him, and she told me that he wrote from Paris somehow, I don't know. What an anodyne, passionless, boring thing to say, I thought. I figured she was talking about a telegram, am alive, stop, love all it are. But even then, he wrote from Paris sometime, I don't know. How could she not have known? She hadn't heard from this man for over a year. She hadn't known if the love of her life was dead or alive. Maybe after the evening, after I asked her, she went upstairs and safe in their bedroom, away from her intrusive daughter, she pulled out the drawer of her bedside table and took out the letter to reread it. I will never know, but when she was dead, I found this letter in the drawer that contained the others. There was no envelope to reveal whether it had been mailed or hand-delivered by someone they both knew who was going to Eshteril. Consequently, I feel that it is irresponsible to want to tie your fate to mine. Yet broken and without a job, I am asking you to be my wife. Yes. The answer was yes. So my father was not without a job for long. Oh, I this is parenthetical. But as I mentioned, when he was in concentration camp, he met a French architect. And that architect and he designed a country house that my father had dreamed of going to. And most unbelievably, after I had written my book, after it was published, after everything... Somebody at the Holocaust Museum who was going through my father's papers found this sketch that had been drawn in Dachau by this French architect. I mean, it reveals something so important about all of these things, and that is the way that these treasures of previous lives, these fragments of lives are just scattered everywhere and you never really know when you... you, It's impossible to put it all together in the end, isn't it? But you can do your best, which I did. This was the liberation papers from Dachau and here was the letter, the broken and without a job, I'm asking you to be my wife letter. My father was not without a job for long. The new Hungarian government, he went back to Budapest, and the new Hungarian government decided that they wanted him to become the American their minister to the United States, their ambassador to the United States. He returned to a Budapest that was devastated by the siege. This was the last great battle of World War II when the Russians came and the Germans met them, and it was in Budapest. There was... Hand-to-hand combat. There was fighting in movie theaters and apartment buildings. The Germans, as they were leaving, blew up the bridges. And many people, of course, were killed. My mother traveled over war-torn Europe in December of 1945. I don't know that there was a polar vortex, but it was a miserable way to travel, time to travel. And the last leg of her journey, she ended up traveling with the Hungarian war criminals um, from Vienna to Budapest, where she met my father. And here they are. When they just met, they were married on December 23rd and then flew a little bit later in the month, well, began their many flights to Washington, D.C., where my father and mother, this was her formal Mrs. Ambassador, this is Ambassadress picture, and there is my father. He was only 42 years old at the time and had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He went to the Paris Peace Talks where he represented Hungary and try, or helped represent Hungary, and my mother was one of the bridey diplomatic wives where they were writing breathless stories about her it was astonishing to find these things when I was a kid. My grandmother kept them, and to see my mother you know, written about in these terms was incomprehensible to me compared to the person I had gotten to know. And here was a picture that everybody was very proud of because my father managed to bring a Hungarian delegation to visit the United States and to actually have a little audience with Harry Truman. And I think you can figure out which one is the evil communist in this picture, a man named the lower, If you guess the lower left-hand corner, you're right. Eventually, that evil communist became the prime minister of Hungary, and slowly and systematically, in something they called the salami tactics, took over the government. By 1947, in June, it was clear to my father that always lost that the government was no longer a democratic government but one that was increasingly the worst kind of stalinist communist government there was in one small opportunity he thought and that was that the american ambassador to Budap- to hungary was returning to the united states it was time for his rotation and my father thought that this would be the opportunity for the Americans not to send a new ambassador and not to recognize this new government. The Americans, of course, declined, and they sent a new ambassador. They said that this would be a much better situation. And the Hungarian government asked my father to return, and my father refused. So he defied the Reds and resigned. And that was really what was the en- that's really pretty much the end of my book my father had seen his country lost twice in a matter of 5 years he stayed in the united states my mother's family always having this great good luck ended up all getting american visas and settling in mostly in new york on park avenue ference corin 70 years old, arrived in the United States with the mantra, make the best of it, and indeed he did. He had some more reparations and started doing a little business. And when I was sitting in his daughter's apartment on Park Avenue, I said, so how did you, what did your father end up doing when he was here? And she said, well, you know, he was a very good businessman, and he did a little factoring for some textile companies in South America. Then he got involved in a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company in Rochester. And then he did some real estate with Mr. Zeckendorf. But when he really made some money was providing some venture capital to a company that went public. And I said, which company was that? And she said, Gulf Western. (laughs) So Ferenc Corinne was resilient. My father, on the other hand, was not in the same way. Also, he was burdened because his family remained in Hungary. Even in Hungary, Segedi Mossack is not a common name. And he had a mother and a father and two sisters who remained there. I found later a letter that he wrote to an old colleague of his in the U.S. State Department, blessedly written in English, and he said, My parents have been deported to the countryside. My father has lost his pension. My sister's sentence has been changed from death to life imprisonment. My cousin has been murdered by the secret police. Can you tell me to what extent I am responsible for this? That was the burden that he lived under and the burden that continued for most of his life. We had a lovely life here in the house on Patterson Street. Um, My father ended up working for the Voice of America as uh, the head of the Hungarian division. His first job was with Radio Free Europe, and the moment he discovered that it was a CIA operation, he immediately quit and then worked with the Library of Congress as well. Judy, a little homage to the libraries, um, where he tried to help them pull together their Hungarian collection. But he remained at the Voice of America as a civil servant until he retired in 1968 and then proceeded to write his memoirs for the next 20 years. They were not finished when he died in 1988, but were eventually published in Hungary. So that is the end of my story. And I'd like to thank you all so very, very much for sharing this evening with me and Please, if you have any questions, now's the time for me to answer them. I'd love to. Thank you.
3: Uh, Thank you. Did you say that your father was saved by Heinrich Himmler, or was it one of your other relatives?
1: No,
2: it, that was on my mother's side of the family. Okay. So she, her I mean, I, family. Uh, yeah. Her family were were Jews, and they're the ones who made the deal with Kurt Becher, who was really Heinrich Himmler's man in Budap- in Hungary.
3: Question: Couldn't they just have seized the factory, as was done to my father, my grandfather's factory in Germany?
2: Yes, they but, could have.
3: But they, this guy, want to make the deal and maybe make things a little easier for him, or something like that.
2: Why he was why they kept their side of the bargain is the mystery that will last forever. Uh, as I did not give enough, I'm so glad you brought that up because I didn't emphasize in any way, and I should have, the mass deportation of Hungarian Jews that was going on at the very same time. I'm sure all of you know the name Adolf Eichmann. I mean, he cleaned out... Hungarian countryside of the Jews. And of course, they could have just taken that factory. Why Becher didn't uh, is a mystery. One question is you know, was it so late in the war he thought it might be handy to have some, you know, powerful friends? But who knows?
3: Or maybe he wasn't all bad. Who knows? You know, it sounds like, well, believe me, my mother was killed by, my grandmother was killed by the Nazis and all that. There were all kinds of mixed, right, right, mixed. Things, but it was probably devious.
2: The spectrum of of badness was really—I mean—the extremes were certainly reached during that period. Absolutely, absolutely. No, thank you. Sorry for that.
3: You mentioned that your grandfather was taken to Mauthausen. Yes. Can we? Can you talk about what? What was his name again?
2: Moritz Kornfeld.
3: Okay. Can you talk about what happened to him?
2: Well, what happened, he was brought there after being brutally interrogated in Budapest, and he stayed there for several months, and then he got taken out. So there was one sunny May day when somebody said to him, are you the Jew Kornfeld? And he said yes, and they summoned him, and they gave him his bag, and they gave him an escort, and said, you have to go to Vienna. Because the family, everybody had to sign off on this deal in order to make it legal. I mean, as we know, the Germans were sticklers about things like that. So he had a young Nazi uh, guard travel with him to Vienna, where he went to the Nazi headquarters there, the Metropole, where he was reunited with my grandmother, and Ferenc Koren and Daisy Koren, Ferenc's wife, and there he signed the papers that were necessary. The family was waiting for all of these papers to be signed and sealed and the deal to be finalized. They waited in a couple of Waggonli railway cars outside of Vienna, so that's one of the painful ironies of that whole story, as others were being shipped in very similar cattle, in cattle cars um, to Auschwitz. But there they stayed for several weeks as the deal was being finalized. So he got out, incredibly.
3: A lot of people have been watching what's going on in Hungary now, with a, a rise of the ultra-right. Uh, not that long ago, a monument was put up to this regent Horty. Yes. But if I... Maybe I was reading your book too quickly. Uh, it seemed that Horty's uh, fault was that he just temporized a lot. So why... Uh, what's, what, what did he do that makes this monument so uh, troublesome? So controversial. Yeah. Well...
2: Um, he, he is responsible for a number of extreme anti-semi- anti-Semitic remarks, number one. In the 20s, he was also the man in charge in the first anti-Semitic law in all of Europe, um, a law called the Numerous Clausus which limited the positions in the professions and in universities to the percentage of Jews in the population. So if there's 6% of Jews in the population, only 6% of doctors, lawyers, university professors could be Jewish. But also during this alliance with Germany, Horty's, I think Horty was not, Horty surrounded himself with anti-Semites. He temporized, it's true, and in certain ways he was not the worst of the worst, but he also waited much too long. He also didn't protect the Jews as carefully as he could have. He also was, I'm afraid, incredibly unintelligent, and so when it came time when he could have done things, he felt the need to include others who were whose interests were were absolutely against the interests of democracy in Hungary i mean he was a right he was a very right wing um man and he was also a very when he arrived there was also a white terror where a lot of people died under his um you know under under his direction so but it was a, it was interesting as i was researching and writing this book um I had always heard that Horty was was stupid and that was kind of the prevailing you know the prevailing thoughts of, about him in our household but indeed he probably was but it was also much he was confronted historically by such enormous complexities and so that was another great problem he did not act heroically however and he could have saved a lot more people and didn't so erecting a monument to him is erecting a monument to those times, which were grim and horrible times in Hungary. It's it's hard to imagine now how pervasive anti uh, it's hard to imagine now how pervasive anti-Semitism was across the entire political spectrum, you know, communist to far right. Um, which makes me wonder. You had mentioned that when this deal was put together. Um, by your by your mother's side of the family that there were four hostages left there which I'm assuming were not your father's family but specific to that to your mother's side of the family what happened to them they all uh, the hostages were absolutely they were all my mother's side of the family again my father was not part of that deal at all but they were um, The my grandmother's brother, my grandmother's my mother's brother, George and his wife, and a cousin and another cousin, and they remained in Vienna, and were watched. And after liberation, after the war was over, they rejoined family members, um, either in Switzerland or they went to Portugal. So they all survived, and they were um, they were fine. They did okay during those various, during the difficult periods um, after the other members of the family left.
3: Uh, recently, um, we met with a uh, German-Jewish friend uh, and said we were contemplating a trip to Budapest. And he was just furious that we were going to go to Budapest and uh, said that the anti-Semitic laws in, in Hungary... You predated the nazis and way they, yeah. they did of course and i read your book so in the 20 and and it's just so hard to believe uh, that a cultured people uh, could have um, been um, as he put it you know um, worse than the nazis so I, I and i it's it's a very tough thing to read your feelings in the book and i'm sure the feeling of many hungarians to he was just outrage that we were even thinking of that trip. So uh, I, I don't know what.
2: I hope you still, I mean, do. <laughs> but I can see, you know, the, the feelings run deep. And um, condemning an entire country is always a dangerous uh, thing to do. Certainly, um, worse than the Nazis, they did set a standard. And um, the Hungarians did a lot of bad things. Absolutely, they were hardly as systematic in their brutality and in their murderous behavior as the Nazis were, although there are a lot of Hungarian Nazis and there were the members of the Hungarian gendarmerie, some of whom had to b- their their attacks on Jews after the Nazis invaded were so violent that nazi that Germans intervened to separate so so it's a very complicated picture and one that um becomes a kind of a Rorschach test, doesn't it, for everybody's sense of that time and that place. But they have not reconciled. It it continues to be a difficult issue there, whereas in other countries um, it may be less so.
1: We traveled to Sweden this summer and um, went to uh, one of the museums that had a major exhibit about Wallenberg. Ra- yeah. And it was a, such a fascinating story about his life and his family and, you know, what he had done. And I wonder, is he recognized in Hungary? Isn't oh,
0: absolutely,
2: he, yeah. And,
1: and did your father, no, for Swedish. example, know him?
2: You know, I... I think my father had met him because there you know he was a Swedish diplomat I'm sure you have heard of him who was responsible for saving thousands of Hungarian Jews and by opening the Swedish embassy by creating passports I mean giving them tremendous amounts of assistance way beyond what anybody else would and the tragic coda to his story is that when the Russians during the siege he was lost captured some and had a very mysterious end some say that he was cited in a Russian prisoner of war camp some say he was murdered there no one knows exactly what happened to this idealistic young Swedish diplomat but he really is recognized in Hungary there's a beautiful statue in his honor and um and his story, I think, is one that is especially painful and poignant for m- for many people. And many people are walking around who were saved by him still. He's a... Yeah, well... After
3: Salish, never about a I sh- the in They're
2: the worst, yes. The Salashi... Yes, you can share that with the audience when you get the microphone. I would love... You're right.
3: I I was just wondering, from your father's story, how after the war, how in play was Hungary, and how, and yet, or was it preordained that eventually it was going to go under the Russian influence and and become communist? I mean, what was there a deal at Yalta about it or anything?
2: You know, that's something that you. one often wants to climb through history and try to change just a couple of things because you can imagine it would have turned out differently. In retrospect, it seemed inevitable, doesn't it, that Hungary was going to fall. For Hungarians at the time, it wasn't so inevitable. For a Hungarian in 1945, after having withstood the siege and having the war over at long last, and this government that was actually democratic coming into flower, there was a sense that this was the opportunity for a new country and a new beginning but I don't know that anybody could only retrospectively does one understand um, the way the Soviets played and how the ruthlessness of their desire for that Soviet bloc and there was nothing I don't think that could have been done, even if the Americans had not sent an ambassador. Um, I'm not sure that it would have changed things very much. The only thing that probably would have changed things is if the Americans had come up through Italy, but that's a different story. Yeah, it was um, it was inevitable, I'm afraid. I did not mention, I mean, and thank you for bringing it up, I should have mentioned that after, that Horty ended up... Um, getting pushed out and uh and then the really brutal hungarian nazi sala she took over in october of 1944 and that began again the most brutal period um especially for the budapest jewry but then the 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 um Deprivation of rights and the assertion of Nazi values was pervasive in Hungary, and I thank you for reminding me to include that evil man.
3: Sorry. When was Hungary liberated? So sad. Was was this this uh, What's the name again? Salashi. Was he still r- ruling or?
2: Anything? Well, there was a siege. There was the Great Siege in that extended from December until February of nineteen forty four to forty five and that's when um, there was the great battle in the and the the horrible combat in Budapest and at that point I can't remember Salashi was tried as a war criminal and killed, right? Was he executed?
3: Yeah and this was um puppet of settlers. It wasn't really a Hungary, it was just a puppet right Hungary, Salas, uh, along with the
2: right, a little too late for that. But then, and the Salashi, and then Salashi, I believe, was tried as a war criminal, arrested and
1: tried. Ms. Rubacky, <laughs> thank you. Um, I am just really curious and if you don't want to answer this, it's fine, but um, I realized that you actually are Jewish. Right, yeah, matrilineal. Your yeah. Lineage, by virtue of your lineage, and we grew up in this amazingly, intensely Catholic world. <laughs> um, and I've just been curious, reading this, did your family ever connect at all the dots around the fact that you're Whole mother's side was Jewish, and that yeah. you all, because of the conversion, were Catholic, but that you were actually, by virtue of your history and your lineage, you were Jewish.
2: Yeah, I'm so happy you you brought that up. Um, no, you don't mind answering? <laughs> no, 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 because it's such an important. I mean, it's a no. It's a great question, and it's a it's a complicated one because you know, as the youngest of three, I somehow feel like I always knew it but my brothers were told about my mother's background like you're told the facts of life when you're old enough to handle it and one of my brothers really you know was steeped in the anti-semitism of Irish Catholic blessed sacrament and in the 50s and really had a hard time but that whole question of identity is one that is so difficult. I mean, I certainly am very drawn to Judaism and have struggled with you know where I fit and have gone to Seder's. I mean, have hosted Seder's for 25 years and fasted on the high holidays and then nonetheless go to mass, so I'm a mongrel. But but for my uh, one to, to my aunt Daisy, who was the daughter of Ferenc Korin was born in 1924 and 26. And she was told, when her, when she went to the Catholic schools, now, mind you, her great-grandfather was a rabbi. And she went to a Catholic school, and her mother decided, you know, with the last name of Corinne, things are a little bit unsettled here. She should know. So her mother brought her in and descri- and described her background and said, you know... There are going to be Jews, and there are going to be Christians. It doesn't really matter. The most important thing is that you are a good person, that you lead a good life, and that you have a sense of some spiritual life. And she went on and on, and she was feeling pretty proud of herself for having imparted this wisdom to her daughter. Then she said, do you have any questions? And she said, yes. She said, well, what is it? And little seven-year-old Daisy said, Mama, have you ever seen a Jew in your life? Now, this is a girl whose parents were Jewish, whose grandfather, great-grandfather was a rabbi, who was not even, I mean, hardly, hardly removed from Jewish identity. And yet, at that age, in that place, with those Christmas trees and Easter bunnies, well, they didn't have bunnies, but you know what I mean, um, it was not even, it was it was alien, so it's uh, it is a very. I have friends in Hungary, and I imagine some other Hungarians here might as well, whose um, people my age who had grandmothers lighting Shabbat candles in the apartment next door, and they didn't realize they were Jewish. Hard to imagine. Yes. It's just so reminiscent. Of, a couple of years
1: ago, a man on the
3: Oh. it was know
2: the Um
3: The Hungarian people have an election coming up very soon and uh, I hope that they uh, are able to move forward uh, and uh, finally find peace. The twentieth century has been a terrible, terrible time for them. And uh, But one thing that I re- recall from being a young boy uh, here in, in America is in 1956, one of the bravest people on earth stood up and faced one of the greatest monsters on earth. Yeah. And for three days, they fought. And three days, they actually had freedom until Mr. Khrushchev sent him enough tanks to crush it. But what a wonderful, wonderful thing. Your poems are wonderful. Your history's fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, um, it was just incredible for me as a young boy to see if people stand up like that against such overwhelming odds. And right yeah. here we have a lady who, at that time, crossed the bridge there at Sopron. Wow. She is a person who is from Hungary. She was there at the revolution. She was able to get out before Khrushchev sealed the border. Wow. My friend Margaret.
2: As I said, there are books in this room waiting to be written. I don't know if you have, but
0: you should. Um, I think that we uh, need to close after this question, and we have books for sale, and There's much, much more in Marianne's book that than she was able to tell you in an hour. So I hope you'll buy the book and take it home. And she will be sitting up here um, at the table signing them for you. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Marianne, so much. Thank you all. It's a
2: pleasure.